a particular passage uh, in Genesis 29 last week. <clears throat> and we focus our attention primarily as we've been going through the life of Jacob on that principle or law of retribution. The retribution being the compensation, either a retribution of reward, or I should say a, a recompense, not, pardon me, a recompense, the, the law of recompense, either of reward or of retribution. I guess I mentioned retribution because that's exactly what Jacob is having to deal with. The recompense of his sowing to deceit. That goes all the way back to Beersheba where he deceived his father Isaac into believing that he was Esau, taking the birthright that belonged to Esau for himself. And then later on receiving the blessing of Esau rather than Esau receiving it. And so now, as we saw last time, almost to every fault of Jacob, he received recompense, a recompense of retribution, which I said last time was not a, re a recompense uh, of punishment, but a recompense of discipline, of chastisement, a purification, as it were, correction. And this is something that we are all familiar with, that if we so... To, to deceit or if we sow certain seeds in our life of, of, uh, uh, of sin, it's going to come back to us. Uh, what goes around comes around is a, is a statement that some people say. And so in the life of, of Jacob, this is, this is happening and and, and all because he loved Rachel so much. He, he really believed this, that Rachel was the one for him. And so he told Laban, as we've already seen, he wanted to marry Rachel, and he would give Laban seven years of his life in service to Laban. So Laban said, sure, that'd be fine. Let's, let's get the wedding going. And he organizes the wedding feast, and all the community is, is aware now that one of the daughters of Laban is going to be married to this relative named Jacob. And there in that wedding chamber, as he awaits his bride, he's considering, thinking so much of, of Rachel a woman comes in, dressed certainly in Rachel's clothing, probably wearing Rachel's perfumes, but not Rachel, the older sister Leah. A plot devised by the father, accepted by the daughter. And so after the demand, as we notice, we're talking about demands, discovery, and Difficulty, but demands have already been made. Jacob demanded to have Rachel as his wife, but then comes the discovery. It isn't 
Rachel in the, in the chuppah, it's Leah. And he goes and complains to his uncle, now his father-in-law, Laban. And Laban said to him, oh, didn't you know? We, we, we don't marry our, our younger daughters before our elder daughters, so if you want Rachel, you'll still have her, but give Leah her week, which is the week of the wedding feast. And at the end of the week, then you can have Rachel also. And remember that in our timeline, we said this, this all happened actually before the seven years were served. So he was already going to serve for se- seven years uh, for Laban. He was going to serve Laban for seven years. And then, now, he's going to serve another seven years for Rachel. He was serving the seven years, the first seven years for Rachel already, but now he's willing to go another seven years. So think about that. You reap what you sow. He deceived Isaac. He deceived Esau. Received all of these things, which he was going to receive anyway because God had already chosen him. But now comes the difficulty. And that's what brings us here to verse 31 of chapter 29. The difficulty. Because the difficulty actually began earlier on because Jacob was in love with Rachel and certainly now he has a wife named Leah, but he loves Rachel more than Leah. And we're told when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, or Reuben, where she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. And you would think, okay, so Jacob is going to put Leah aside, wait for Rachel. Rachel's already his wife. But she's barren. So... Jacob and Leah have relations again because it says then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And, And she called his name Simeon. Simeon, which means really the Hebrew name Shimon, which means he hears. Reuben, or Reuben, the, the previous son, the first son, was, was named, look, a son, as if she says to Jacob, look, a son. Now you have a son. So you can love me now. But then she conceived again, which tells us Jacob is having some relations with Leah. But he doesn't love her as much as he loves Rachel, but hey, she's there, right? Sad. But she conceived again and bore a son, and she said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. I want you to take notice of something that's missing in this verse, and then I'll let you in on it later. But notice at the end it says, Therefore his name was called Levi. Levi, not Levi. Levi. Levi is a genes. Levi is a Hebrew name, which means 
joined or attached. And then in verse 35 it says, And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. And therefore she called his name Yehuda or Judah, which means praise. And then she stopped bearing, and really that verse should say she stopped bearing for a while because she'd bear again later in the next chapter. But Jacob had committed himself, as we said already, to serving his uncle Laban's household seven years for the love of his life, Rachel. And we've already dealt with his demands to Laban for Rachel. And that brought about Laban's consent and, and complying with the demand, as we said. He makes the wedding feast, he orders it, he sets for Jacob uh, and Rachel this wedding feast. And, but it, there's an exception, except, and this is the big exception, instead of Rachel appearing in the wedding chamber, it was her elder sister Leah, and hence the discovery. And what a lesson to learn about reaping and sowing. What a lesson for Jacob to learn about reaping and sowing, for indeed, this could only lead to difficulty in the household. We mentioned last time that polygamous relationships can only bring trouble, can only bring difficulty within the family. And God had already established the standard. The standard in chapter 2 of the book of Genesis was what? A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, singular, singular wife, female wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the standard. The standard will bring about the right, proper blessing. All we see after that, even though polygamy is allowed for a time, it is not the standard. But although it was allowed because of the culture and other issues, and we're not going to go into that detail today, nonetheless, though it was allowed, and even when the law came into effect after the book of Exodus, uh, even in, in Leviticus as the law is being established, there were certain laws given that had to deal with polygamous relationships. But not in accepting them, but in having to deal with them. But again, for another time, we'll deal with that. What we need to understand is polygamous relationships bring problems. Always bring problems into a household. God did not want it that way. Look at the trouble. Look at the trouble that Abraham had with just two wives. Because in fact, he was married to Hagar. Though that wasn't the plan. That was the plan that Sarah brought into effect. Sarah was his one wife. And Sarah was a wife who brought in, many years later, but by God's grace, brought in the son of promise, which was Isaac. And then, of course, Isaac actually shows us the, the, the full true picture of, of a, a good monogamous relationship, which is Isaac and Rebekah. And part of the reason that that is the way it is is because when we studied back Abraham and Isaac, Isaac had been, had been a type of Christ. When Abraham took Isaac up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice. So he stood as a, as a type of Christ, and therefore it was, it was only good for us to see that Isaac and Rebekah stayed as a monogamous relationship. So with that in mind, 
all that just to say this. But those kinds of relationships only bring trouble into households. Now, God's recompense of retribution came as a discipline for Jacob's sin in deceiving his father. The Lord wasn't remembering his sin and holding it against him. Now, some people might think I'm taking a risk at saying stuff like that because you say, well, you know, he's, 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 he's not punishing him, but, you know, doesn't the Lord punish us when we sin? Well, he, he's going to punish sin. He, he, if, you, if you understand the scriptures well enough, you know that sin was punished where? On the cross. Jesus took upon himself all sin, our sin. So if we understand that, then we realize, though, when he's dealing with us as believers, this is not license for us as believers to do what we want to do or to go out and sin the way we want to sin if, just because we know that, you know, well, he's not going to punish us. No, no, no. It's torment to live under the guilt of sin. It's always torment to live under the guilt of sin. That is why we can't look at Jacob and say, well, you know, he got away with a lot. No, he didn't. For the next 13 years or so, actually well into 20 years, because that's how long he's, he's away from his home, before he can get his whole families back over there. I say families because of his wives. But before he, can all do, before he can do all of that, he goes through a lot of difficulty in his life. But the difficulty, either we see it as God's discipline and chastisement and cleansing and purifying, or it's punishment, and God is going to punish the unbeliever. There is going to be judgment for unbelievers. God doesn't punish us as much as what he's doing is disciplining us. We saw that in the book of Proverbs and the book of Hebrews. What does it tell us? That God disciplines those that he loves. A totally different concept than punishment. So we're not here to beat people. You know, if you're going to sin, you know, God's going to punish you. Sin has been punished. Sin has been taken care of on the cross. But he is going to correct us. And he corrects us because he loves us. So the Lord wasn't remembering his sin and holding it against him because we have already seen how abundantly God had and would bless Jacob. Jacob was simply reaping what he had sown. He had sowed seeds of deceit. A crop of deceit was the inevitable harvest that he must reap. Whatever we are sowing today will be reaped in due season. Folks, I hope you're, you're sowing things unto the Spirit of God. Because whatever we're sowing, we will eventually reap. But if we're only sowing seeds into, you know, uh, seeds of the flesh, then we're only going to reap corruption, as we'll see in just a moment. Whatever we are sowing today will be reaped in due season. One of Job's friends, Eliphaz, is, is quoted as saying this in Job chapter 4, verse 8. He says, even as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. If you plow iniquity and you sow trouble, if you go out to do certain things and you know it's sin and you know it's wrong, but you go out and do it anyway, you're going to reap what you sow. That's the simple understanding of the principle of sowing and reaping. I didn't mention this last week, but in Hosea 8 verse 7, the first part of the verse says, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. If you sow seeds to the wind, all you're going to get is a whirlwind in your life. Now who wants that? 
And again, last week Paul, Paul uh, wrote this in Galatians, and we saw this last time. I want to say, show it to you again. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. We are reaping the benefits of heaven. We are going to be reaping the benefits of God's blessing and God's grace when we sow to the Spirit. When we sow things that honor God, when we sow things that honor the name of Christ, when we sow things that honor the work of the cross in our lives and for our lives. The whole, the, when you see the comparison, who wants to sow to the flesh? We're, you know, to some extent, we're already corrupt, aren't we? We're in flesh. The flesh is, you know, we're, we're going to have new bodies as believers in Jesus Christ. But, but here's the thing. Paul said when, when we're waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ, he said in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the corruptible is going to put on incorruption and the immortal is going to put on immortality. Well, while we're waiting for that to happen, we need to be sowing to the Spirit and not to the flesh. There's enough corruption already. God is already going to take care of that. There's no need to be sowing into the flesh any longer. Now, I must say that it is wrong... It is wrong for us to see every trial or persecution or affliction as a retribution for something you've done. It is wrong to think that way. Unfortunately, some people have taught, you know, that, well, look, if you're not being blessed by God, if you're not getting the things that you want in your life, then obviously there's something wrong with you and you're probably in sin. I've heard that teaching for many, many years, but it's just not, it's just not biblical. Jesus himself has said this. The apostles have said that for us as Christians, we are going to face persecution. We are going to face troubles and trials. In fact, and I quoted this last time in the book of James, James says, count it all a joy when you face various trials. Count it a joy. I'm not saying to be happy that you're going through a trial, but you count it a joy because the working of that trial in your life is going to produce patience. It is going to produce a perfect work by God in your life. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to grow. He wants us to mature. He wants us to understand that the afflictions and the fires of the afflictions of this life are only tempering us to be more in the image of Jesus Christ. So, understand that it is, it's wrong to see every trial or persecution or affliction as a retribution or retribution for something you've done, for some sin that you feel that you've committed. But there are times in your life, however, when a crop will appear that bears a striking resemblance to the seeds that you earlier sowed in your sin. So if you see that, then, then you realize, okay, I'm reaping what I'm sowing. So now what do we do with that? Do we take it to the Lord and say, okay, Lord, I realize you're trying to teach me a lesson here. I realize you're trying to purify my heart. I accept it. Have we gone to the Lord? See, because what we're finding out about Jacob is Jacob has met with the Lord, and, 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 and yet there are times when he puts that aside to try to figure things out on his own. We'll see that in just a moment. So each of us should be concerned about what we are sowing, knowing that the reaping is inevitable. It may not come tomorrow, it may not come next week, it may not come next, next month, it may not even come next year, but it's going to come in some way. 
So one other point of clarification before we move on to complete this chapter. There is something of great importance to realize about Almighty God as recompense of retribution and reward. Almighty God, of course, is El Shaddai in the Hebrew. El Shaddai as recompenser of retribution and reward. Because he recompenses with retribution, he recompenses with reward. So with that in mind, in recompensing reward, our God is gracious. In recompensing reward, God is gracious. He rewards you beyond what you deserve. How many of you would agree with that? He rewards you beyond what you deserve. Let's look at Jacob. Let's look at Jacob. He certainly didn't deserve a blessing for his deception, did he? He didn't deserve a blessing for his deception, and yet, because Jacob had sought God, because Jacob had seen God, he had met God. When he had that dream out there in, in the wilderness and, and, he, and he saw that stairway and, and he saw the angels ascending and descending upon that stairway and then he saw God himself and God spoke to him and God had a conversation with, with, with Jacob and telling him, listen, I am going to bless you with the blessing of Abraham and, I, and you're going to have descendants that you can't even count. I'm going to bless you. And he got up that day after that dream and he, and he built that altar and he worshiped the Lord and, and, and that gave indication that he now had a relationship with the Lord. But he goes with that spring in his step and a, and a song in his heart and he goes on to Haran where he meets Rachel and he's, you know, he's just beside himself with her. But you see, all of that, the Lord rewarded him both materially and spiritually. He rewarded him with prosperity and he, and he rewarded him with prophecies. He rewarded him with victories. And he rewarded him with, with, with visions. God is gracious. He gives us what we don't deserve. Now, on the other hand, in, in recompensing retribution, our God is merciful. In recompensing with retribution, as he did with Jacob here, for, sowing, for reaping what he sowed, he is merciful, which means he is not giving you what you do deserve. God is not giving you what you do deserve. Let's look again at Jacob. Jacob deserved to be cursed for his deception. But God kept Isaac from cursing him. Esau sought to murder Jacob because Jacob had stolen the birthright and the blessing from him, and yet the Lord kept him alive. God was in every way merciful with Jacob. His retribution was a just discipline. It was a proper chastening, and it was necessary for his spiritual growth and maturity. And again, it wasn't punishment. God knew what Jacob needed to prepare him for the ministry that lay ahead. Because Jacob was definitely going to need spiritual growth and maturity when called upon to father a new nation of people. That's what's happening with these sons that are coming. 
But before that takes place, he would need wisdom to deal with the difficulties brought about by Laban's deceptions. I mean, Laban was going to have his day, okay? But so was Leah. But Jacob had to have wisdom from God to deal with the difficulties. And that didn't start off good because the first part of chapter 29, we don't really see Jacob seeking the face of God, do we? Again, these are, these are tells for us. They're telling us something. We saw it in the life of Abraham. There were times when we know that Abraham sought the face of God and God answered him and God gave him wisdom to deal with his situations. And other times, Abraham said, I'll handle this myself. And when Abraham tried to handle certain things himself, what happened? He got into trouble. So anytime we see any section of Scripture, especially here in the book of Genesis, we see that there's no contact or no communication or connection with God, we know what's happening right now. Isaac, or I should say Jacob, is trying to figure things out himself, work things out himself. That's the way he was before, trying to do it again. But what came about it all? Difficulty. And while we see Jacob's growth in some of his decisions, there was some growth. I mean, let's, let's, let's face facts here. He made commitments to serve Laban 14 years for Rachel. He could have done a hundred other things. He says, no, I will do that. I will wait 14 years for Rachel. But there were still areas in his life that needed work. And I can tell you this, today when you look in the mirror, you can look at yourself and say, that person needs a little bit of help on some areas in his life or her life. Right? There's never a day that we can look in the mirror and say, man, look at that perfect thing. Look at that perfect specimen. Man, not a hair out of place, if you have hair. Not a hair out of place. Oh, boy, handsome, beautiful, whatever you are. Wonderful. God's gift to this earth. Right? You look in that mirror and you say, my Lord, how could you have mercy on that? That's the reality. That's how merciful our God is. That's how wonderful he is. To love us in spite of us. And Jacob, boy, he needed some help. Let me make this statement. One weak link in a believer's home. One weak link in a believer's home can cause a great deal of tension, disturbance, pain, and hurt. One weak link. The blessing is that God can overrule the tension. He can overrule tension by bringing peace and blessing to the family if the family would only turn to the Lord together. When your families finally realize if we don't get on our knees over certain situations or issues in our lives, we're going to sink. And the minute you guys get on your knees and you pray or you seek the face of the Lord together, God is going to answer. And when he does, you realize, why didn't we do this sooner? Am I alone here? Why didn't we do this sooner? And then why don't we continue to do it? Whether we're going through good times or bad, God deserves our praise. God deserves our worship. God deserves our prayers given to him and everything. But if there's one weak link in the family, it causes all these tensions and disturbances. And folks, I'm here to tell you, the one weak link in Jacob's family was Jacob. Jacob. 
the man who knew God, didn't stand up to Laban. We could argue all the things that he could have stood up, stood up for, but instead he said, okay. Now there was some wisdom in that, but there were also a lot of problems that came from having two wives that are sisters, and we'll see that a little bit more next time too. But here's the greatest problem that Jacob had. The thing that he had to overcome the most was favoritism. Favoritism and partiality. And I tell you what, he, where did he get it from? Isaac, his father, favored Esau over him. Rebekah, his mother, favored him over Esau. They had their favorites and they played favorites. And they actually played them against each other. That, that's not a good example, is it? Parents, if you have more than one kid in your house, don't play favorites. I don't need to tell you that, do I? You know what, you know what happens when you do. You, know, you get to hear those words. You always loved him better than me. Look at all the stuff he gets, or she gets. Only causes pain, doesn't it? But you see, we have a God that overcomes this favoritism. And this is where, where, where God is beginning to do a work of overcoming partiality, overcoming this favoritism. And it is a problem. Go back to verse 30 of our text, which we ended on last time. We see it here. Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. He, he, a week later, he married Rachel, and, and he went in, which means they had their relations together. And he, and he, but, but it says, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. Loved her more. Which means he loved Leah a whole lot less. And he served with Laban still another seven years. While that's commendable, Notice the problem of loving her more, of loving Rachel more. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, that word unloved, in some translations may be the word hated in English, but it carries the sense not only of, uh, of, the, of the hatred that the Bible teaches. Now, if you remember a statement that Jesus made a long time ago, he said, listen, unless a person hates his father and mother, and we say, wow, Jesus said that? Yeah, but he said it in the context of what that word meant to that culture, is that anytime you hate something, that means you just love something more than that which you hate. So if we love, if we, if we, if we put others ahead of Jesus, it's as if, you know, we hate him. Although we may love others more, he says, you need to love me more and others less, almost as if you hate them. There has to be that, that kind of relationship that we have with the Lord. We can still love each other, but we need to love him more. And that's the understanding here. The word unloved has to do with, with being loved a whole lot less and putting a lot more attention on the one that is being loved. So it, it has that sense of hatred, but unfortunately it carries also the weight of neglect. It carries the understanding of neglect. And, and I can tell you this. Some people will say that, you know, Jacob didn't want to, uh, wasn't trying to abuse Leah. 
But in terms of what we understand neglect being in families today, neglect is abuse, isn't it? To neglect those that you should love, and he should love her because she was his, her, she was his wife. But she felt neglected and unloved. It, it carries a tremendous weight. And yet notice it says that he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. So we already know how much Jacob loved Rachel, and we're told that he just didn't love Leah. He just didn't love her. He didn't care, love her in that sense of just loving her like he loved Rachel. So he would end up neglecting her, and she and her father. But, but here's, here's something that you have to understand. Don't go into the rest of this without understanding this, and that is that she and her father tricked Jacob into marrying her and the embarrassment of having been made a fool before the whole community was hard to forget. Jacob was made a fool of. He was the laughingstock of Haran and the area around it. Why? Because he thought he was marrying Rachel, and instead he married the not-so-pretty Leah, the one with delicate eyes, the one that wasn't as pretty as her sister who was beautiful. The one that would probably never really have anybody because she just wasn't pretty. And maybe she considered herself to be ugly. So Jacob found it hard to forget that. And in turn, Leah is neglected. And she felt neglected. She was unloved, and she felt unloved, and she, she was unwanted by Jacob, her husband, and she was feeling unwanted. Jacob, as far as we know, was kind to her. I probably, I'm sure, didn't mistreat her or abuse her physically or any other way. In fact, to his credit, he would take care of her and her children the rest of, the rest of her life. By the way, they're his children, which means they had to cross paths sometime. Right? Up to this point, four times, at least. But he just loved Rachel more. And much of this he reckoned without God. Much of this he did without taking any of this to the Lord. Much of this was just reckoned without God. But Leah would learn the high cost of her own sin. Leah, you reap what you sow. The high cost of deception. And what we see is that the Lord would see the pain and the hurt that she was suffering. And he cared for her. Why did he care for her? Because she went to him. She went to the Lord. This is the implication here. And when she went to the Lord, God overruled. God overruled, overruled what was taking place. On the basis of what happened, it appears that Leah turned to the Lord for help, that she spent much time in prayer asking God to help her through the pain and the suffering. And the Lord answered her prayer because that's what God does. God sees and God knows the brokenhearted. And the Bible is very clear that when he sees the broken heart, he responds. 
And what did he do in this instance? He opened her womb, which possibly means that she might have had a, a closed womb like Rachel's. But he opened the womb, and she began to give birth. And she gave, she gave birth to four sons in rapid succession. I don't mean like one a day. <laughs> we, we, we all know the science and the biology and the physiology, right? So we, you know, nine months for each one, a little time be, in between. So it's about between four and five years that these first four children are born, okay? That's the rapid succession that we need to deal with. Please deal with, with, with nine months for every child, okay? Got it? But before we get to the sons, let me just say that favoritism hurts and causes severe ruptures in families. It can cause deep pain and suffering. It can create tension and all kinds of problems between family members. But understand this. Leah's situation was bad. Leah's situation was bad, which the Lord did not completely change. What he did change was Leah's heart. Now, folks, you think about some of the situations that you've had to deal with in your life. You may be dealing with some of those things right now. God may not completely change those situations in your life, but he wants to change you. And when he changes you, you're able to look at the situation now from God's perspective and know that God works all things out for good to those who love him. God wants to work this out. But you've got to see things from his perspective. The situation may not change. But if you change, then that was God's intention all along, is to change us. And Leah was changed because he gave her grace to live in a less than perfect situation. Now I've got to ask you all, the situations that we deal with in this life, are they less than perfect? All of them are, aren't they? I mean, we would all love to live in a perfect environment. We'd all love to live in a perfect home, in a perfect uh, community, in a perfect city, in a perfect nation. We'd all love to, to, to work in a perfect location where there are no troubles. Everybody smiles. Everybody says hello to you. Nobody spills their coffee on your desk. Nobody leaves you nasty notes. Perfect environment, right? We would all love that. But folks, we can't have that in this world because this world has fallen and it's cursed. And we were born into sin, all of us, not one of us, were born perfect with a silver or gold or platinum spoon in our mouths. We were all born into a not-so-perfect situation. And the dealings that we have in life are all not-so-perfect. And yet, God gives us grace to live in a not-so-perfect world. And he gave her, Leah, he multiplied her joy in childhood and in childbirth, I should say. He multiplied her joy in childbirth. He gave her sons. Listen, he gave her sons who became the fathers of the greatest of the Jewish tribes. Levi was the father of the priests. Judah was the father of the tribe through whom the Messiah would come. 
And if you can get into the heart and the mind of Leah for just a moment, it would reflect the saying of, of uh, it would reflect the saying of, of, of uh, David in Psalm 27, verse 10, when he says, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. And you would see in that heart of Leah, that, 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 that thinking that would say, you know, even though Jacob is my husband, and, and even though he neglects me, and, 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 and he just kind of uses me to bring babies into this world and all of that, no matter what, the Lord is the one who takes care of me. No matter what I'm facing in this world or in this life or in my family or in, in, in my situation that I am struggling with right now, no matter what it is, the Lord is going to take care of me. This is what Leah has come to learn. And it begins with this thought in Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such that have a contrite, as have a contrite spirit. A spirit that just bows and says, I have sinned before you. I have offended you and you only, O God. And again, the implication would be that Leah herself, in going to the Lord, would say, Lord, I'm realizing now what I did with my father Laban in, in deceiving Jacob was wrong. But I cry to you because of my neglect, because of my, my, my feelings of unwantedness and the pain of that. And God answered by opening her womb. God's real good at opening wombs. He's, he's good at opening wombs. Just ask Sarah. Like she was really old when she gave birth to Isaac, wasn't she? 90 years old. Rebecca was barren for a time, but God opened her womb. You know, the Lord's good at healing wounds and opening wombs. I just, want you, I just want that thought to sink into you because look at, look at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. Always remembering that the Lord God is in control of all things, we see here that he indeed controlled the ability of these women to have children because God controls everything. God controls it all. Sometimes circumstances seem to say that God has lost control. You know, we look around the world and man, it looks like chaos. No. God, beginning to end, has already told us what's going to happen. The end is already written for us. And we see that we're headed toward that way because everything is making sense now. And we're getting to the end times. We are in the end times. And we realize that the, the coming of Jesus can be at any moment because God said it would. He's in control. Amen? So why are we trusting in CNN or Fox News for, for, for wisdom or, or understanding or truth? No, the real truth is right here. And it has been proven time and time again, the reliability of God and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the reliability of everything that God has given us in His Word. It's there. He controls all things. He promised Jacob that his seed would multiply, and it certainly did. He made Leah capable and for a time made Rachel childless or barren, just as Sarah and Rebekah had been for a time. For all must be seen in God's timing. And I don't know about you, but I tell you what, God's timing is always perfect. 
God's timing is always perfect. You know, when you read this, when you read the Gospels, I, I love this part of the Gospels. You know, when you look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels, you never see him run anywhere because he's always on time, isn't he? He never has to run. Doesn't have to buy a watch. He just knows what time it is. He knows where he needs to be. Even in that time when, when, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, a message was sent from his sisters, find Jesus and then tell him, Lazarus is sick and we need him to come. And Jesus said, let's wait. Jesus, Lazarus is sick. It's okay. He walked from where he was to Bethany, where Lazarus was. But by the time he got there, Lazarus was dead. And you might think, Jesus, you should have run. But he was in control. They cried to Jesus, if you had only been here, Lord, if you had only been here, Lazarus would not be dead. And he would say to the sisters, listen, you believe that he'll rise again at the resurrection, don't you? Well, yeah, we believe that, Lord, but he's dead. So let's go where he is. He goes to the tomb. And he tells the men to move the stone away from from the tomb. And for days he's been in the tomb. And they're saying, Lord, don't open that because he stinketh. And Jesus wept. Why did he weep? Because his friend Lazarus was dead? That's what they all thought. Oh, look, he's weeping. He loved his friend Lazarus, but he's dead. If you'd only been here earlier. Why did Jesus weep? Because all these people should have trusted Jesus. And Jesus spoke into that tomb, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And I've always said that he had to say Lazarus because if he, yeah, there were a lot of tombs around there. If he had said, just come forth, there would have been a whole big resurrection of everybody. All wrapped up, you know. Oh. So specifically, he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of the grave. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, will live again. Jesus was in control. Never is his timing off. Always perfect timing. So I don't know why I told you that whole story. I just, I just felt like I had to. Maybe, maybe some of you needed to hear it. But there it is. God is in control. So the first four sons of Jacob were, were delivered by Leah, which meant that Jacob had to do more than just neglect Leah, since he also knew that Rachel was barren. And if he wanted strong sons, he would have to consider Leah. So he considered Leah. Bring forth children. That's kind of sad in itself, isn't it? Well, let's look at that. Verses 32 to 35. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. The name Reuben means, look, a son. But it also sounds very much like, The Lord has looked on my affliction. 
But she thinks that now Jacob will love her. But then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me the son also. And she called his name Shimon or Simeon, which, 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 which just means that he hears. He hears. He, hear, he heard my prayer. So there's still that, that, that trust in the Lord that all of this is in God's hands. But then in verse 34, remember I said, look at this verse and tell me what's not there. It says, she conceived again and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Any mention of God here? Any mention of the Lord here? No. Is that not familiar with our own lives that sometimes we walk with the Lord and we talk with the Lord and we do all kinds of neat things with the Lord, but then we face a certain trial in our life and then all of a sudden we try to figure it out ourselves? And it takes us a while before we actually come back to the Lord and, and, and say, okay, Lord, I need you to help me with this. That happens to us. And we put God out of the picture. We say, look, I can handle this one myself. Probably because I'm mad at you, Lord, because, you know, I thought you were helping me here, but you're not helping us. So I'm, I'm going to figure this one out myself. So she has another son, and she calls his name Levi, which means attached or associated or, or joined to. And uh, she just wanted that attachment to Jacob, but it just wasn't happening, was it? And then verse 35, she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. What happens when God convicts you of not trusting him? He brings you back to him. How many times in your life have you gone away from the Lord, tried to work things out on your own? The Lord, through the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, He just stirs you up. You get convicted, you get guilty, and you fall before your face before the Lord. Or you fall on your face before the Lord and you say, Lord, forgive me. And because of God's love and grace, He picks you up and He encourages you. And what do you do when you do that? You start praising Him again, don't you? You start giving him thanks. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you, Lord. God, for restoring me because I was, uh, I was just a mess and I was mad and I'm sorry, Lord, that I was mad at you and blah, blah, blah. And then you praise him all the more. Makes me wonder sometimes when we have worship times, you know, in church or, or, or nights of worship and, and, you know, some people are, are worshiping and praising the Lord and others are just kind of standing there. I'm thinking, hey, don't just stand there. Don't wait till you have to be forced into praising the Lord in essence. No, praise Him now. Praise Him in the good. Praise Him in the bad. Praise Him in the struggles. Praise Him in the trials. Praise Him in the victories. Praise Him in the valleys. Praise Him in the troubles. Praise Him in the triumphs. But just praise Him because He's worthy of it. you got to start doing that. You must praise the Lord. And so, she finally got it. And it says... She bore a son and says, now I will praise the Lord. No mention of Jacob, no mention of sons. Maybe he'll love me, maybe he won't love me. No, I'm going to praise the Lord. And she called his name Yehuda, Judah. Praise, that's what it means. And then she stopped bearing. Well, for a while. Reuben represented the affection that she sought for. Since every Jewish father wanted sons, Leah was certain that this baby would, would cause her husband to love her. However, she was wrong, if that's the case. But what she did do so right, what she did do right, was acknowledge the Lord by calling him Yahweh, by calling him by his name, the Lord, 
capital L-O-R-D, all capitals, in the English signifies that that's the name of God. Hashem, the name. Not just Elohim or Adonai, which are used sometimes as translations for the, the name Lord. No. Y-H-W-H in the Hebrew, we, we say Yahweh, some people say Jehovah, but it is the name of God. Really the name upon which the name Yeshua is based upon, the name of Jesus. So this makes her the first one in Jacob's family to confess her faith in the Lord God Almighty. Simeon represents an answer. What she believed was an answer because she named him one who hears and suggests that Leah had been talking to the Lord about her misery and God answered her and gave her this child. I do hear your prayers, the Lord said to her. When she gave birth to, a, uh, to, to Levi, that's the third son, it was that desire for that attachment. But you know, the attachment really was still in her heart toward Jacob when all along it should have been toward the Lord. You see, the most important relationship in this room today is yours with Jesus. Now, if you are here with your husband or your wife, that relationship will be blessed if your relationship to Jesus is cemented. So, get right with Jesus. Be attached to Him. And then realize how blessed your attachment to each other will be. So she had hoped that by now Jacob would become more attached to her for the male children she had birthed. But as we said, this is a spiritual discouragement. She doesn't mention God here. It was now evident in her life. And with her first two sons, she acknowledged God, but now she gave no credit to God at all. But then, as we said, next comes Judah. And next to Judah, there was no more memorable son born than Levi. Not even Leah's spiritual discouragement could prevent God from manifesting his grace. God could have, God could, you know, we sometimes say God could have just said, you know what, if you're, if you're not going to acknowledge me for Levi, I'm not going to give you any more children. Instead, he gave her one more. The one upon which she said, now I praise the Lord. No amount of spiritual discouragement on Leah's part could prevent God from manifesting his grace. That's how wonderful the grace of God is. And we cannot change the grace of God because we think God has to be a fierce, mean kind of God. Just look at the cross and you see the manifestation of the love of, of God. God gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. Where did He give Him for? The cross. That's how much He loves you. The cross. Lastly, Judah represents adoration. Judah represents adoration because then when Judah comes, praise comes because the child 
is a child of splendid destiny. And after that period of spiritual discouragement, Leah recovered her spiritual hopefulness. The Lord honored her for that, for the kings of Israel. Listen, the kings of Israel would spring from Judah in the fullness of time. The Son of God himself would come into the world through Judah's line. We see in this passage no fretting from Leah because her sister had monopolized Jacob's heart. She had found an outlet for her love in the Lord. She no longer needed people to make her happy. Her joy and her praise were in God. I'm going to tell you this. I really want you to take it for what it's worth. I hope it's worth a lot. But if we would praise the Lord more and complain less, we would decrease our miseries. Did you get it? If we would praise the Lord more and complain less, we would decrease our miseries. If we would praise the Lord more and complain less, why am I driving this home? Because sometimes I think all we do is complain. But if we would praise the Lord more and complain less, we would decrease our miseries. I don't know of any of you here that love misery. I know there's a statement that says misery loves company. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we shouldn't love misery. We will face trials, but they don't have to be miserable. We face them because we know God is on our side. We know God is with us. We know God said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Can you take hold of that? So how appropriate it is that when Christ would come on the scene, praise would be fitting. As soon as Christ appears, praise is fitting. Consider Luke 2, verse 11. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, who is Christ the Lord. See, I told you this thing would come off of my ear. <sighs> All right. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We're having Christmas in July, aren't we? Look at, look at verse 12. And this will be the sign of, to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes or cloths, lying in a manger. But notice, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth goodwill toward men. On earth peace, goodwill toward men. I mean, the praise was fitting because Jesus was here. And so, what the Lord has ultimately done is overrule the trickery of Laban to his own glory since Judah is born of Leah. Both David and Jesus are descendants of Leah. I want you to let that sink in for a moment. David and Jesus were descendants of Leah. So deep and so deeply is the divine purpose of salvation woven into the affairs of human life. Let's think about this thought before we close. The two greatest tribes of Israel were not born to Rachel they were born to Leah Levi from which the priestly tribe would come and Judah the royal tribe from which Messiah would come that's a heavy thought isn't it we would always think it was Rachel because Jacob, Jacob just loved Rachel more. God chose Leah to be the wife that would bring forth 
the two great tribes, the one through whom Jesus would come. I want to make this last statement to you, and I want you to please bear with me in what I say. But folks, I don't care how ugly you think you are. I don't care how uneducated you think you are. I don't care how unworthy you think you are. And I don't care how unqualified you think you are. Our God sees you as beautiful and will do great things in you and through you for his glory. May you never forget that. God sees you as his beautiful child. It doesn't matter what you think of yourself, because too often we think so much less of ourselves than we should, because we know that we're sinners. But God loves you a whole lot more than you realize. As a matter of fact, in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, the first part of that verse says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. God is looking for faithful people who love him. My question to you today is, are you willing to step forward to bear much fruit for his kingdom? The Lord wants you to, and he's looking for you. And if you seek him, you will find him if you search for him with all your heart. And then you'll be found by him, and you will be blessed. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for a love that we cannot fully understand. For the very fact that we know how, how we are, what we are, what we have become because of sin. And yet, we deal with the fact that you love us in spite of us. Even to the extent, Lord, that you sent your only begotten Son to die on a, on a cross. That symbol of punishment and pain. But you died with 
with us on your heart. You died with us in your thoughts and in your mind and in your heart. You went in our place. So we are indeed thankful, Lord. And it overwhelms us to think what great love you have shown us. We bow in the only way we can bow, which is humbly before you. And we ask, Lord, for the continual outpouring of your Holy Spirit, your wisdom, your grace, your mercy, your love, to encourage us, Lord, as we leave this place today, to trust you in every circumstance and situation, which we know to be less than perfect, and yet, Lord, you are perfect indeed to give us of yourself in the midst of those trials. Father, this week, fulfill our, help us to fulfill our ministries as we seek, Lord, to serve you in joy and in gladness. And whether it is, Lord God, through a, a strong situation or, or, or a difficult situation that we need to do so, we can enter into these issues and events knowing that we don't go alone, that you're with us always, even to the end of the age. So we surrender to your presence, to your power, and to your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Shall we stand? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his...